all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. Okay, so this is Thistle Pedersen. I'm reporting for WLRN from the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. I'm in the office of Leah Horowitz. Welcome, Leah, to the program. Thank you. So, Leah, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your, your job here at the university and, and what you study and what you know about women in the environment and specifically women and the impacts of climate change? Okay, yeah. So, um, I'm a, as you said, I'm a professor here at UW-Madison, um, and I have a joint appointment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and also the School of Human Ecology. So, uh, my background is I'm a social scientist, actually a, a cultural geographer by training, and my re- research uh, focuses on uh, grassroots engagements with environmental issues. Um, I've done some work on uh, biodiversity conservation, but most of my research has been uh, focusing on indigenous-led resistance to industry. Um, and most of my fieldwork has actually been in New Caledonia, where I was looking at indigenous people's engagements with nickel mining. Um, and now I'm also uh, doing some work on resistance to pipelines in the U.S., like uh, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Wonderful. Yeah. And so New Caledonia, is that the name of it? New Caledonia. Yes. New Caledonia. Where is that located? Yeah, exactly. Most people in America <laughs> have heard of it, right? Um, it is a small archipelago about the size of New Jersey, and it's in the South Pacific. So it's sort of um, just off the coast of Australia, just east of Australia, if you want. And they have nickel there. They have a lot of nickel there. They, it's, I think, um, something like one sixth of the world's remaining nickel reserves on this tiny mm-hmm. island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's actually um, a piece of Australia that broke off a long time ago, so the soils are very weathered and ancient and have a lot of minerals. Mm-hmm. And so there are mining companies that see dollar signs, and they Absolutely. want to go there and mine for the nickel. And what is the indigenous resistance been like? Um, yeah, well, there was... Um, so the, the people there, the indigenous people there are Mel- Melanesian, which is uh, a geographical region in the South Pacific, and the p- people specifically on New Caledonia are called Kanak. Uh, and the, the, the mining there uh, has been going on um, for a really long time, since sort of the 1840s, um, and primarily nickel, although there are other pro- uh, minerals there too. Um, and what I was studying, there were these two uh, large-scale multinational projects where um, each company wanted to build a refinery um, on this little tiny island. <laughs> so um, they and they did actually end up building the refinery. So they now have three coal-fired <laughs> refineries on this little tiny island. And there was uh, certainly some resistance to that. So I was studying the two projects and comparing the, the their reactions to them. Um, one was in the north, called the northern, lo- locally in the local sort of vernacular, called the northern refinery. And the other one in the south was referred to as the southern refinery, which is kind of an easy way to refer to them. Um, and, uh, well, in terms of um, gender issues there, something that was interesting was that... Um, 
so in the, in the south, there was a, a movement that rose up to oppose the project. In the north, that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Um, but the in the south, the 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 movement that rose up, the leadership was was men, male, right? So um, they were the leaders of the project, but the women who were uh, involved were played very active roles in this resistance. So. Um, for example, the refinery construction site uh, was barricaded for about two weeks, and women maintained a presence at the barricade. Uh, they did all the cooking to feed everyone, um, and they got chased by police and they got tear gassed, you know, right alongside the men. So in the in the north, as I mentioned, there wasn't a protest movement uh, per se, and partly because um, women couldn't, culturally speaking, take on leadership roles. Um, so they didn't, weren't able to do that, but the women were still very active. They formed a group of women who were uh, fish, who liked to go and gather uh, seafood from the shoreline, and they formed to advocate for their rights to those marine resources that they depend on. Uh, and they were concerned that the industrial project would damage those resources and would kind of um, affect their ability to access the coastline as well. Um, because in, in New Caledonia, the women, uh, tend to go out along the coastline and gather crabs in the mangroves, you know, shellfish along the coastline. And it's, it seems like it might be an easier thing to do than the men who go out onto the, into the sort of deeper ocean and do the line fishing and gather um, other resources. But it's actually really intense because they have to wade out there in, these, in this really deep mud and sort of poke in the mangroves for these crabs. And they're, they're vicious. They have these huge, these are big crabs. <laughs> They have these huge pinchers. They're not your little tiny garden variety crabs. They're they're big. They're massive. And so then they have to grab them and sort of they slap them against their chest. And so the pinchers are going you know wild. And so they quickly have to tie them up with these um, rubber bands to keep them from from pinching them because they could do some harm. So it's uh, it's pretty intense. So that's what they do, and that's how they earn a bit of cash as well by selling these crabs in addition to eating them. And they're they are super tasty. <laughs> I have to admit. Um, so they were concerned about these resources and. So they, they really did take, eventually, over time, um, what was interesting to, to know was that during my field work, so I started uh, working on this in 2001, and I went back pretty much every year, and I found that in 2001, the women were saying things like, oh, we know that's the men's work, we can't really speak up against this project, even though they were very concerned. And by 2000, and, um, I guess about 2007, they really were engaging with the company, and they had formed this group, and they were making demands, and they were negotiating things. So they were really standing up for their rights. And that was in line with the cultural evolution of New Caledonia uh, during that, kind of during that same time period, although it had origins way back in kind of the 1970s um, when uh, people started, people, Canuck people in New Caledonia started to agitate for independence from France. And so women were very active in those struggles, and that kind of gave, gave them the courage over the next few decades to start to fight for their own rights and also um, start to fight for, their, for things to happen in their communities as well as on the political scene. So they uh, formed groups to advocate against alcohol abuse, um, which was mainly by being performed by men, um, against domestic violence. 
And so, um, you know, they were becoming very empowered, very active within their communities and also on the political scene. Uh, in fact, uh, between 2004 and 2007, the president of New Caledonia was a woman of European Caledonian descent, and the vice president was a Canuck woman. So there's a lot of change going on around this time. But what, one of the things that I found was that although the women were becoming more active and taking on these roles, the companies actually excluded the women from the negotiation processes. Both companies did this. Uh, so in, in the North, for example, where there was not a protest movement, but the women were forming their own groups to advocate for what they needed, um, they found out that the project was going to destroy about five hectares of mangroves, which is, as I mentioned, where they go to, to gather their, their shellfish. And so um, they were, became very upset about this, and they made it known that they were not uh, happy about this. So uh, what, the, what the company did was, rather than sitting down and addressing their concerns, they went behind their backs and they talked to the, the elders in the community, who were all senior men, and they um, took them on a little tour around and showed them what their plans were, and the men approved this. And they, you know, then they went back to the women and said, "See, the, it's fine now because the leaders have have approved this," and so that caused tensions within the community. But you know that there wasn't a lot that they could do if the if the leadership had had said yes. Now, in in the south, it was even a little bit more extreme because the company uh, ended up negotiating and signing a pact with the protest group that had arisen, this indigenous-led protest group. So this pact was signed by four uh, protest group leaders, 25 customary authorities, and two mining company representatives, all of whom were senior men. Not a single woman actually was among the signatories. So the, and they were not involved in the negotiations. In fact, many of them didn't even find out that this pact uh, was going to be signed until after the fact. So they were pretty upset that this meant the end of their protest movement and that this industrial project was, was going to go ahead. Now, uh, in both of these cases, the companies justified what they had done in excluding women um, with the argument that they were respecting traditional customs. Because in the, you know, in the traditional society, as they argued, the men did all the decision making, right? Now, the problem with that argument is that I was discussing earlier that Canuck society is changing and women are gaining power because cultures are dynamic. They're not just fixed in time forever. So, you know, the men that I, so I, I went back and I talked to the, the men who had signed the pact. And so, you know, they said, well, of course it was only natural that they were the ones to be asked to sign this document. But they also said they would not have objected if the company had held separate negotiations with the women. But of course, the, you know, the company didn't want to do that because it meant that the women, you know, women would have had their own concerns and demands, right? Um, the marine resources that I mentioned, they have different marine resources that they're concerned about than the men are concerned about. Um, but also things like increased alcohol consumption by men um, who will be employed by the company because they've seen that happen when there's an influx of money into the community, what happens. And also, you know, the risks involved in having these large encampments right next to their communities, which are predominantly full of men from outside the community coming through. So, you know, rather than having to address all the concerns, the company chose to, to use this convenient excuse of respecting custom and really just acted in their own interest. 
And so I call that retrogradation, right? Like pushing back against the, the changing tides of time and, and cultural change. And unfortunately, this, this kind of undermined a lot of the social and political progress that women had been making. So, so that's a lot of detail about this time. You know, archipelago in the Pacific that most people in the U.S. have probably never heard of. But I'd like to propose that there are broader implications from that particular story. And one is that when women are excluded from leadership, everybody suffers. And when women do have the opportunity for leadership on environmental issues, they, you know, because they traditionally have responsibilities of care, they tend to focus on things that affect the entire community. So things, you know, and especially children. So things like clean water, clean air, uh, the sustainability of wild foods, things like that. And so they tend to be less interested in, in short-term profit, like, you know, short-term employment and things like that, that are only, it's only in any way going to benefit a few people and probably are those people who are able to benefit from those kinds of opportunities are the least vulnerable in the community to begin with. So, you know, I mentioned um, the Dakota Access Pipeline a little while ago, and so, you know, we saw these kinds of things happening at Standing Rock where the, it was the indigenous women, right, both the youth and the senior women, who took on very strong leadership roles against the Dakota Access Pipeline. They had very strong concerns. Um, but, you know, tragically, the reality, at least right now, is that we do have a lot of senior, wealthy, white males who are making decisions that affect women in communities of color who are affected by poverty. So, you know, for example, um, with the Dakota Access Pipeline, there's a senior white man as a CEO, Kelsey Warren, right? And we obviously have Donald Trump, who told the Army Corps to reverse their decision um, about requiring an environmental impact study for the Dakota Access Pipeline. And now we have uh, Judge uh, Boesberg presiding over the lawsuits that have been brought forward. Um, and many of these lawsuits have been brought forward by Native and non-Native women. So again, we see these kinds of patterns of oppression uh, reproducing themselves based, that are based on race, gender, and class you know, that we see in other parts of the world, but they're being reproduced right here at home too. But to end on a more hopeful note, <laughs> there is a way out of this kind of oppression, and that's you know, what I argue in my work, and that's that you, you can't just sort of change laws, right? The laws on the books. You can't just change them and just expect that that's going to create meaningful social change, right? Because if people that the laws are directed to, right, the powerful elites, if they don't see a reason to change their behavior, no matter what the law says, they'll find a loophole, right? They'll find ways to get around the law in one way or another. And, you know, particularly if they can find powerful people in the government that they can manipulate to get what they want. So we saw this with the civil rights movement, for example, right? When African Americans got voting rights, that didn't automatically mean that they were able to vote because you know all kinds of barriers got put in their way of being able to exercise their legal rights. But if you can change those ideologies and if you can change those kinds of power relations so that there is social pressure and real power behind those laws, then things start to change. So, you know, our job, I would argue, as people of all genders, of all races, uh, who care about things like human rights and the environment. Our job is to just keep pushing, keep pushing to change public opinion, uh, keep standing up and taking power wherever we can. Uh, and it can be something as simple as just going to the polls and casting your vote, which can have real power for change, or something like getting involved in an activist group, you know, which there's certainly plenty in Madison, Wisconsin, but other places too. Thank you.
You are listening to WLRN. Can you, for our listeners, can you give a brief update? Could you talk a little bit about the pipeline and where it's at today? Well, it did end up getting built. Um, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, in, on December 4th, 2016, uh, Obama did ask the Army Corps to require an environmental impact uh, study be performed, uh, which is much more extensive than the environmental assessment that they were previously required to do. And that would have taken, it would have at least delayed the process a couple of years, which the company didn't want to do for obvious reasons. And of course, as soon as the leadership changed, then right then the executive order was signed. And although the Army Corps did not technically have to change its uh, decision, and in fact, it's they're, they're being challenged now. Uh, and it's you know the argument is that that was not a legal action for them to suddenly reverse <laughs> their decision about requiring the the company to perf- to have an environmental impact statement um, study done of its of its project. Um, nonetheless, you know, uh, while the deliberations and the legal process in the courts was going on, the company was busy building the pipeline. So they got it all done in uh, June of, I think, uh, 2017. It already started um, having oil flow through it. And now I believe they're trying to expand the, uh, increase the amount of oil that's being pumped through, uh, pumped through the pipeline. Um, so, but the, what's still happening, what's still going on, are these court cases. So a lot of them have gotten consolidated into, um, were, you know, the different court cases, the different lawsuits that were brought forward have been consolidated into, you know, one case, which is much more efficient in terms of resources. Uh, and there, it's going forward in, in the district courts in, in Washington, D.C., with uh, Judge Boesberg, who I mentioned, is... The one who was assigned um, to preside over these cases, and um, assigned by Donald Trump, or who was he assigned by? No, um, I think yeah, it's it's the judicial branch of government, so it is independent. Um, and I I don't know how exactly he got assigned got that assignment, but uh, unfortunately he does not know he, his background is not in Indian law. So he does not have the background in native rights over land and resources. So um, he, I guess, is getting an education as to that. But um, he, yeah, he's made certain decisions um, that have not been what the tribes were hoping for, of course. Although he has uh, said that it was not uh, okay for the Army Corps of Engineers to just reverse their decision like that. And so... But you know, by the time that decision was made, it was kind of a bit late. And what the company does is they build everything that they can, even if they don't have all the permits in place to finish the project off, because then they can sit there and say, oh, look, we've invested so much in this project already. It would be just terrible, you know, be such a waste if we could just finish that last little bit right there, you know? And so that's the kind of this, this pressure that they put on the decision makers in order to get what they want. Uh, so, but nonetheless, that is going ahead, and they have, you know, even though they, from one perspective, they've won because they've got what they wanted and the oil is flowing, they spent a lot of money having to deal with the delays and the extra uh, lawsuits and um, 
all the extra regulatory processes that were they had to deal with, right? So they don't see it necessarily as a huge win for them because they lost a lot of money in the process, which is, you know, and that's what it's all about, right? I mean, a corporation is, you can't blame it for what it is. It just is what it is, and that's the nature of the beast. It's about making money. So, you know, left to its own devices, that's all that it can really consider. So yeah, so when we see resistance movements like this, even if they the end result is not exactly what they were hoping for, it's not necessarily completely a loss. You know what was what was done because it does cause delays um, and it does cost money to the company, which is an important factor. Mm-hmm. And it increased awareness throughout the country of this problem mm-hmm. and this issue. Absolutely too. And, uh, I mean, I remember when Standing Rock was just on everybody's mind and it was making front page news. And I think people still remember that and that that's also a gain on our side, uh, the side of the environmentalists that are fighting and resisting these pipelines and all of the problems caused by the fossil fuels industry. What do you think the future holds for the environmental movement and and also the feminist movement and how they intersect and you know when you see a gain in women's rights do you also start seeing a gain in environmental conservation and um, more value placed on conserving the environment yeah that's an interesting question I mean the certainly uh, women are at the forefront of climate activism right from uh, things like raising awareness that you're talking about, um, people like Naomi Klein, you know, writing about uh, climate change, and also people fighting for indigenous climate justice, like Winona Leduc and Honor the Earth. Yeah, so um, women uh, are do play a big part in climate change activism, and they are often, like you're saying, the most often often the most affected by it. Um, because of traditional roles, like in many cultures, women are the ones who are responsible for providing water to the household, uh, and that's getting more difficult because of climate chaos and you know increasing droughts and then flooding, and we're even seeing that craziness here in the U.S. Uh, in um, Missouri, and I was just in North and South Dakota, and you can still see the flooding from earlier this spring. So these problems, we're not immune to these kinds of problems, right? Uh, and so women are responsible for water, they're responsible for caring for family members who are suffering from health effects um, from climate change, um, because climate change is, is already causing uh, the spread of tropical diseases um, to places where they had never been before, because they're, those places are becoming more hospitable to those microbes. Um, and not to mention things like famines, uh, cyclones, hurricanes, flooding, and all the all the uh, types of disasters that are, are occurring from, from climate change. So, yeah, let's hope that as women become even more empowered and more active um, in in these issues, it's there's no doubt that they're going to be uh, very concerned about um, avoiding the the worst effects of of climate change. I mean, women, in any um, polls that you see done, women do express much greater concern about the environment than men, inevitably. So uh, there's no doubt that they are going to play a greater role as, as the future, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. 
Wonderful. I noticed how you used the term climate chaos. Is that an accepted term in academia now to refer to what we think of as climate change? I've always thought that term makes it sound like, you know, we're going to have palm trees in Wisconsin and it's just going to be a nice new environment for us. Um, but when you say climate chaos, is that an accepted term? I feel like it's more descriptive of what's actually happening. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, study actually been done on uh, terms and what are the most appropriate terms to use when describing climate uh, climate change or global warming. You know, which is better, right? What what has the most resonance for people? And there are different um, different people uh, respond differently to different terms. So it's, it's, we think about messaging. This is one of the things that I teach about um, in my course called Climate Change Governance that I teach in the fall, uh, is, is messaging and how to reach people. And um, there's this group out of Yale with uh, Tony Lazarowitz who does these amazing surveys every year. And he and his team have identified what they call the six Americas. So there's six different groups <laughs> that Americans can fit into, and other studies have done have been done that you know talk about four or eight or whatever number they say six. But in any case, the idea, the point is that different groups of people will respond differently to different terms. Um, one I like is global weirding, right? Which is kind of similar to climate chaos. It's, the climate is just going to get really weird and unpredictable. Right, and already we get annoyed if we if it rains when it wasn't supposed to. Well, it's going to be a lot more crazy than that, right? It's just going to get more more and more difficult to plan and adapt to the the changing climate. Wow, how much if if we don't change our behavior in uh, burning fossil fuels and creating this climate change, this climate chaos? Uh, how much longer before we reach a point of no return? Uh, I've heard that we have, as a species, about 35 years left or something, 35 to 50 years before we will either really bottleneck in our population or we'll become extinct because it's a huge crisis. Yeah, the numbers start getting really scary, uh, and I'm not a climate scientist myself, so I wouldn't be able to speak with any authority on on those kinds of numbers. And to be honest, I don't really like reading, <laughs> hearing about them because it does terrify me, and then I can't sleep at night. And you know, and I worry about my kids too because I won't be here necessarily in you know 50 years time. But my kids, kids will probably be you know just hitting their strides. So, yeah, so it does get really scary, and I, I don't know why. I'm not quite sure exactly how many years we have left. But, you know, the, and there is a certain amount of inertia built into the system whereby no matter what we do now, we are going to face some, some impact, some serious impacts. And so we need to, part of it, part of what we need to do is adapt and figure out how we're going to cope with what's coming down that we can't avoid. But we also need to be, and what I focus on in my course is mitigation. In other words, trying to avoid the worst impacts because we can adapt more quickly than we can mitigate. In other words, we can, we'll be able to cope with these, the kinds of changes coming down the pipes more quickly than we will be able to actually stop the effects from happening mm-hmm. because of this sort of 30 year lag in whatever we do. So the idea being that let's focus on mitigating while we can and then worry about adaptation when we have to. Yeah. What if everybody in the world planted a butterfly garden with plants that 
are native to their area. If everybody in the world did that to attract bees and pollinators, wouldn't that make a difference in, in planting trees, too, a, a wide variety of trees? These are the types of behaviors you're talking about, the actions we can take to mitigate, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it would, but where I, I get a little concerned about, and I, I, although I do believe that individual action is really important, and I try to live that in my life, you know, as you know, I don't, I don't want a car. I get around on my bike and walking and taking the bus. I, you know, don't eat meat. Um turn the heat down in the winter, rarely put on the air conditioning in the summer. You know, I, everything that I do in my personal life. We're um, using natural lighting right now in exactly. your office <laughs> instead of having the lights turned on. Yeah. Um, you know, all the things I do in my personal life, which sometimes drives the rest of my family crazy, but <laughs> somehow put up with me. You know, that, that part of that is just me reminding myself of the importance of this issue. Because as much as we can do in our personal life, I get a little concerned about putting the blame on the individual and putting too much responsibility on the individual because frankly as individuals there's only so much we can do and we're much more effective if we can agitate at the political level so if we if we change you know if i change a light bulb okay that saves a tiny bit of energy but if i change the system if i become part of a movement that changes the system you know that's just going to create so much more significant change than anything i could do acting alone Absolutely. Can you list off the names of the top environmental movements that you think women could get involved with who are listening to this program? I know there's 350.org. Mm -hmm. Are there any other movements that you could recommend for women to plug into? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is that there's so many movements out there that you can kind of pick and choose what works for you. And just kind of, because when I first came to Madison, I was kind of looking for... Um, I, I did not have employment at that particular, well, I was sort of underemployed at that particular time. So I was looking for ways to get involved and spend my energy on, you know, trying to get involved in these kinds of organizations. And so I looked around and there's, there was so many uh, that I kind of explored. So things like uh, Climate Reality uh, Leadership Corps, which is involved with educating people about uh, climate change. And I did a little bit of that, but I, then I looked into a little more and I realized that you know, while that's important, that messaging is only going to reach certain people who are ready, ready to listen. So then, um, then there's the climate, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, which I think does really important work. But I don't necessarily have the kind of patience to work with people that I really don't agree with politically. And I think I uh, probably am not very good at uh, hiding my passion for <laughs> issues that I care about. Um, I wrote a very nasty letter to a senator once about an issue <laughs> that's not their MO. So um, that probably wasn't for me. So um, then I got involved with 350 Madison, which was probably more along the lines of what I think is the most effective and what research would show is probably the most effective way to affect change, uh, which is nonviolent direct action. So, uh, and these are the these are things that I teach about in my class too, which is you know all the different forms of activism around climate change, and they go from you know these kind of contained actions like signing petitions, participating in marches that don't really challenge the system and, and get in people's way, and it, you know it goes all the way up to well, violent actions like Earth First or you know Environmental Liberation Front, which I'm not advocating <laughs> that people get involved in um, because I don't I don't advocate violence you know in any way, but we do need to be aware of this range of strategies that are out there and also um, you know it turns out that 
nonviolent direct action is actually the most effective way to disrupt, to get in the way of everyday life and make people stop and take notice. And like with the pipeline protest, to actually cost the company money because they have to stop what they're doing mm-hmm. and address the person who's locked to the, you know, the machinery or whatever it is that's stopping them, get, you know, disrupting their mm-hmm. daily activities. So, yeah, there's certainly a range out there, and um, there's uh, different structures of organizational leadership, too. So some of them are more nationally centered, others are more uh, sort of decentered with local groups. So it really, yeah, there's so much choice. I think what's the best advice is just to shop around and choose what you feel most comfortable with and what really works for you. Mm-hmm. We all can play an active role in resisting global climate change, global chaos, or climate chaos, and um, yeah, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our largely radical feminist and lesbian feminist activist listeners? Just speak up, you know? You have a voice. Let's, let's hear it. We need to hear from you. All right. Thank you so much, Leah. Well, thank you, Thistle. That was the full interview Thistle Pedersen did with Professor Leah Horowitz of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on June 24, 2019. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. 